Hello, everybody. Welcome to the learning curve. It is, well, we'll be coming to you on March 2nd. And I'm so excited because at long, long last, here it is, the two co-hosts of the learning curve back together again. I think, I think that must be Gerard Robinson on the other end there. Is that you, Gerard? It is me back together again. That's actually a riff from a 70s song. I, let's go sing it. Oh, no. I was trying to think of all the lyrics and who sings it, but I can't. So I'm sure one of our well, listeners you know, will send us I a would, note. Well, I would probably know, but I think you were more cognizant in the 70s than I was. because you know. <laughs> Wait, you weren't even born then. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> sure. Of course I wasn't. No. Mm -mm. I didn't own any bell bottoms when I was a kid. None at all. Those aren't even back. We've, we've passed bell bottoms now. It's the 90s that are cool again, right? I can't even. I heard something on the radio this morning that... The new nostalgia are wired headphones. You're kidding. Like three years ago. I'm like, my husband still uses them. He doesn't see the point in using Bluetooth. So I, I don't know. I guess that's, you know, you're middle-aged when, Gerard, when the kids confuse you. Anyway, how have you been? You have had two fabulous co-hosts while I was away. And I had a fabulous co-host where you were away. You don't have to tell us where you were, but you want to update our listeners on some of your fun. What have you been up to? This has all been work-related, of course. No fun for you. Absolutely. Sorry. So as many of you know that I have a theme song, uh, On the Road Again, by Willie Nelson. So I was doing a lot of Willie Nelson on the road again. I uh, was in Birmingham, England, meeting with scholars, postdocs, and fellows who work for the Jubilee Center at the University of Birmingham. It's funded by the John Templeton Foundation, the Kern Family Foundation, who's also a two funders of ours at the Advanced Studies and Culture Foundation. And they invited me to really get a chance to see what they do. And they are one of the, not only countries, one of the world's leaders in advocating not only for character education, but putting a research spin to it. And so spent five days with them and then spent time right outside of Macon, Georgia, meeting with some teachers at an elementary school. Amanda Miller, who is the assistant principal there, also the 2015 Georgia Teacher of the Year, was one of the participants in a summer institute we had last year where we talked about character, education, moral formation. And right now I'm in your neck of the woods, Chicago. I'm here for an event with other grantees, and we're here to talk about education, character, and life. So my old neck of the woods. Are you, yeah. Are you going to have a red? Oh, you're ve You're adhering to a vegan diet. You're not going to have a red hot. But if I were there, you know, I would head on over to one of those fabulous establishments <laughs> such as the Wiener Circle. <laughs> Hello, Chicago. Well, you know, Jared, while you were hard at work, I was hard at play. <laughs> First visiting after a very, very long two years my in-laws and my husband has a very big family in Buenos Aires, Argentina. So we were there for a week. My children were reunited with their grandmother and all of their cousins and aunts and uncles. And it was pretty fabulous, I have to say. I know that Durrell co-hosted with you one of the days I was gone. And he would appreciate that we got stuck in traffic because there was an enormous 
convoy of River is one of the teams, the local Buenos Aires soccer teams, soccer fans. And boy, you have never seen party buses like these party buses. Let me tell you, my friend. So that was a highlight. And then after that, we went from one hemisphere almost directly to the other and spent some time skiing with our neighbors to the north in Canada, in Quebec, which is actually just a short drive from here, not too far. But I made sure, Gerard, that while you were hard at work, I was doing as much relaxing as possible. So rest assured, rest assured that I'm well rested. <laughs> well, because of what you just said, I feel better because I just lived through you vicariously through space yeah. and time. So this is a good thing. This is why this is the learning curve. When there you go. You are, on a different curve on the earth, I'm still learning. <laughs> At least one of us is. At least one of us. Exactly. Well, I have to say, I was learning a lot. As our listeners might have guessed, our fabulous producers, they are the ones that push us. Jamie Gass gets the credit for finding really cool articles and then tells us, you know, read a bunch of these and figure out which one you want to talk about today. And I read a very, what I think is thought-provoking for me, at least, article and learned a bit today from the Hartford Current. And this is about Connecticut from Hartford, Connecticut. And the title, it's by Seamus McAvoy, this article. The title is Connecticut Technical Schools in Line to Break Away from Department of Education and Become an Independent Agency. Now, Gerard, as, you, as I think you know, during my day job at Excel and Ed, we've got this just crack team of folks who they focus on college and career pathways. And so I spend some of my time thinking about college and career pathways, mainly because I'm learning through them. But I thought that this was a really interesting article because my knee-jerk reaction, as some of our listeners might understand by now, to anything that smacks of like creating a new state agency or another body to regulate something, usually I'm like, oh, yeah, let's hold on that. Let's pause. That's not a good idea. But this article is all about the idea that, number one, career and technical education in Connecticut is becoming just more and more in demand. And they've seen huge rise in demand in the past few years. And I think that for our listeners that don't think about this topic, really important to know that some of the best schools out there are career and technical schools, very high performing schools that provide kids with lots of different options, right? Like not only prepare them for college, but also give them opportunities to think about careers that'll take them directly into the workforce, or maybe even for some kids, take them into a job that's going to help them earn money while they're in college. So it's just another way of providing options. And this article is discussing how when the career and technical education programs are housed in the Department of Education, departments of education are built, were built to oversee public school systems and career and technical education systems, especially at scale when they have lots of kids enrolled, have different needs. And so they're creating this new agency in order to provide administrators in career and technical education more flexibility in how things are done. They're going to be able to sort of manage the school finances differently of the system of schools that they have, manage curricula differently. And, you know, one of the things I would say that really got me thinking is our folks at ExcelNet have just done phenomenal work around not only assessing in different places the availability of courses and course offerings and paths to career, to college and career that are aligned with the needs of the local economy. So I think that that's one thing that a new entity like this could spend time doing, but as well as asking really important questions around how aware are students and parents that these diverse options are really available to them? And I think a lot of times what we have found is that for various reasons, school counselors and others, 
either aren't aware of the options that are available to kids or are of a mentality of a mindset that college is the way and that there's no sort of alternative way to get there, or alternative path that kids might actually desire, they don't promote these programs as much. So I am heartened by this because I think it's an opportunity for a new agency to really focus on this resurgence and the importance and the emphasis that many states are placing on career and technical education and to make super high quality, high skill, high paying careers that don't necessarily require a college degree available to kids, especially in a time when more and more people are quite frankly, just opting out of college for many reasons, but including the cost of a college education. So I loved this article. I learned a lot and I want to um, maybe I'll go down and visit Connecticut and see how they're doing once the new agency's up and running. So I know that you've spent a lot of time thinking about career and technical education, Gerard, what do you think? Well, as you know, I'm a big fan of CTE. And what we often forget is that CTE's got really long roots, deep roots in our history. You know, you go back to 1879 in St. Louis, where the first manual training school was created. And then you go to New York in 1881, where we have the first trade school. And so the whole idea of CTE began to mature, as did the United States. As cities became larger, as people moved from rural areas to urban areas, frankly, as more people decided, hey, I want to go directly into a trade, you found K-12 schools offering more CTE. And so I'm glad to hear this. The creation of another agency to work with it or to report or be responsible for it doesn't bother me. If you ever want to see one field of education that will move from different spots, look at early childhood education. In some states, yeah, it's true. in the governor's office. In another, it's education. Another, it could be a combination thereof. So I'm glad to hear this. Connecticut is a state with a lot of good people and hard workers. It's been a blue-collar state for many decades. And so seeing something like this, I think, moves us in the right direction. So I like that story. And in fact, it's not too different from my story, which is... Not CTE in the same way, but it's CTE in the career world. So my article is from Inc. And the author is Jeff Steen. And Jeff is talking about, as you may know, Sundar, who's the CEO of Google and Alphabet, announced a $100 million educational fund. And the fund isn't for higher education per se. He created the fund to really do two things. Number one... You have 70,000 adults in the United States who've actually gone through a program where they've been credentialed by Google. And as you and I talked about, in fact, you just mentioned the whole idea that everyone may not go to college, uh, either directly at the high school or at all. There are people who simply want certificate, training, something to go into the workforce. And Sundar said, you know what, we need to do more of this. And so with the $100 million fund, it's going to provide an opportunity to educate approximately 50,000 more people who will receive certification. And the great thing about the partnership he's creating with Year Up and other groups is that once you go through the training, there's no upfront costs. Once you get a job, let's say over $40,000, you can begin to pay back into the fund, and those funds will be used to bring in the next cohort. I'm a big proponent of what I call stackable credentials, something our friend John Bailey uh, has yeah. been championed up for a number of years. Because as I've said, even for my own family, if my two younger daughters decide not to go directly to college or to go to college at all, 
or to leave high school with a certificate or licensure or something else, I'm all for it. Because the whole idea of how and where you learn is different. Now, the Jeff was really interesting. He said he's not calling for the end of higher education as we know it. And to just paraphrase something from Mark Twain, the death of higher education has often been very exaggerated. But he did note in his article that when you look at a report published by U.S. News and World Report, the average cost for tuition and fees to attend a ranked public college in 2021-22 was roughly 10000 For out-of-state students, you're looking at 23000 Once you're looking at private schools, it's 38000 But you know, I know that's the average. We have colleges yeah. right now, $78,000 and more. And so if you're a student and you're finishing high school and you want to go into tech or you want to become an entrepreneur, well, one option is to go to a four-year institution or a two-year institution or, with your article, to participate in CTE. Sundar is saying, well, hey, we've got links to a lot of groups who would love to have someone qualified like you. So give us a look and come get a certificate. I'd also like to end by saying we think about pathways to careers. We only think that this is a 20-year endeavor. But since I'm in Chicago, I might as well give a shout out to McDonald's because they created Hamburger University in 1961. And more than, oh, that's, a, that's some laughter. Ah, you must know about Hamburger No, but it's just the title. It's, it's amazing. It's both <laughs> Hamburger University and the fact that you always know the date. And I know you haven't looked it up. So it's impressive. Oh, absolutely not. More than 5,000 students a year attend Hamburger University. And, and get this, and over 275,000 people have graduated with a degree in Hamburgerology. So there's already been a template to get people into the workforce. It's also worth mentioning that McDonald's as a franchise is one of the top five in the country to create black millionaires. And so I've had a yeah. chance to see the impact they've had on families and friends for years. So Sundar, thank you for what you're doing. I like the certificate idea. What about you? I have to say, in reference to McDonald's, my brother-in-law, who I saw in Buenos Aires, he worked here in the States for quite a long time, went to business school at Cornell, all of these prestigious things. And he, too, started off at McDonald's and it made his career. So I appreciate that reference, Gerard. No, this is just I love stories about a any kind of new money flowing into the system. But when funders have a really clear and targeted idea of what it is they want to do and the, the space that they are going to fill. And I'm really hopeful that this is going to help to continue to elevate the profile of career and technical education, which, as I said at the outset, is a really career and technical education, but but alternatives to college opportunities too, which is really what your article is about. Because I can remember when I was in high school, it wasn't seen as any sort of a desirable path. And boy, nope. what a tragic perception. So I think that by putting an emphasis on these issues in this way, we're in a much better place than we were certainly 10 years ago when I was in high school, Gerard. Absolutely. Anyway. Absolutely. We have coming up right after this, we always have such, you know, especially given all, and we should have said at the outset, all that is going on in this world right now, some of the really difficult things that are going on in Ukraine, what we are witnessing there, and our thoughts and prayers are with the people of Ukraine at this moment. Our next guest is going to have a lot to say about She's very experienced in issues of immigration to this country and very experienced in issues of global affairs. We will be speaking with Linda Chavez, whose lengthy bio I will read coming up right after this break. 
Learning Curve listeners, today we are excited to host Linda Chavez. She is a senior fellow at the National Immigration Forum and author of Out of the Barrio Towards a New Politics of Hispanic Assimilation, as well as her memoir, An Unlikely Conservative, The Transformation of an Ex-Liberal. In 2000, Chavez was honored by the Library of Congress as a living legend for her contributions to America's cultural and historical legacy. She's held a number of appointed positions, among them Chairman, National Commission on Migrant Education, White House Director of Public Liaison, Staff Director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and she was a member of the Administrative Conference of the United States. Chavez was the Republican nominee for U.S. Senator from Maryland in 1986. In 1992, she was elected by the United Nations Human Rights Commission to serve a four-year term as U.S. expert to the U.N. Subcommission on the Prevention of Discrimination and Protection of Minorities. Chavez was also the editor of the prize-winning quarterly journal American Educator, published by the American Federation of Teachers, where she also served as assistant to AFT President Al Shanker and assistant director of legislation. Chavez was received a Bachelor's of Arts degree in English Literature from the University of Colorado and a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from George Mason University. Linda Chavez, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being with us today. It's terrific to be with you. Yeah, wow. I mean, what a life of accomplishments. I'm so excited to hear more about your career and your interests today. So you were born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and you have had, as I just outlined, a remarkable career. You're an influential author. You're a columnist. You are an important public figure, one of the most important, many would say, of the last 40 years. So could you talk to our listeners a little bit about your upbringing and how your life to date has shaped your public views? Well, thank you. Yes, I had a, a very interesting upbringing. My dad was a house painter with a ninth grade education. His family, the Chavez and Armijo families, had been in New Mexico almost from the founding of New Mexico. The Chavez's came in 1601 and the Armijos came in 1701. So very, very deep roots in what is now the United States, but was first a Spanish and then a Mexican territory. My mother's family also had deep roots. My mother's English ancestors were already here in the United States, uh, born on what was then the colonies in the 1600s. And her father's family were immigrants from Ireland. So an interesting sort of microcosm of what America is all about with both immigrant and deep native roots. I grew up in a lower middle class family, did not have a whole lot of material advantages. But my father was a great reader, despite only having a ninth grade education himself introduced me really as a young person to the great Russian writers. He loved Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Turgenev and Chekhov. And so my love of literature goes back to, to my father and growing up in that family. And then met my husband at a very young age. Met him when I was a freshman at the University of Colorado I was actually living at home and attending day and night classes at the Extension Center for the University of Colorado in Denver. And we were married a year and a half later and have been married ever since. So almost 55 years of marriage. So an interesting background. 
Wow. 55 marriage in and of itself is quite, quite an accomplishment, especially in the, in the grand scheme of all of the things you have accomplished in your life. And that is um, right up there with them. So congratulations to you. Now, and I think anybody looking at, at that marriage, you know, two 19 year olds, uh, one from a yeah. uh, professional upper middle class Jewish family and another from a working class Hispanic and Irish family would have not given us a whole lot of chances for success. Yeah, but- maybe a lot of people were betting on you, but you showed them. I think that is <laughs> right. absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing and fitting for someone with your bio. You seem like quite a persistent human being. So I know that a lot of our listeners are going to be fascinated by your tenure with the AFT and your work with Al Shanker, who among education reformers, especially those of us who um, we talk about school choice on this show time to time, Al Shanker is both revered and then sometimes the, the relationship with the teachers union when it comes to certain education reforms is a little more tense. But he was, by all accounts, he really was a great champion of civic education. Could you talk about what it was like working with Al Shanker and for the AFT and why you ultimately decided to sort of part ways with the unions on some policy matters? Well, I will tell you that Al Shanker was an exceptional man. He was brilliant. He was very creative, very thoughtful about public policy issues. And even though he remained a liberal Democrat uh, until his death in 1997, That did not stop him from reaching out, for example, to the Reagan administration once President Reagan was elected. He did believe very much in public schools. He was not opposed to public school choice, but he was very much opposed to school vouchers and federal money going to private schools. And I initially would have been a champion of of Shanker's position on that as I was working for the union, but later came to differ with him on that issue. I'm myself the product of Catholic schools for 12 years, and I've often attributed to my academic success to having gone to Catholic schools. So they were very critical in my development. But Shanker, I think, first of all, he was uh, interested not just in domestic politics, but he was very interested in defense policy, very interested in foreign affairs, and he was a hawk and very much an anti-communist, very much believed that the United States was an exemplar in the world, very much believed that without the United States' role and leadership in the world, the world would have looked like a very different place. And you mentioned civic education. I actually became involved and created a program to promote civic education when I worked for Al Shanker as editor of the American Educator magazine. And we put together teaching materials for teachers K through 12 to teach about civic values, such things as honesty, loyalty, courage. And we put together materials that could be used in the classrooms. And I had a very interesting uh, partner in that process, a fellow named Bill Bennett, William Bennett, who, when I was working with him, was a fellow at the National Humanities Center. But he later joined the Reagan administration, became the head of the National Humanities Foundation in the government, and then went on to be secretary of education. 
And so he was, as I say, Albert Schenker was perfectly willing to work with people across the political spectrum so long as they shared basic values. But his love for America, his belief that in order to have an educated uh, population, public schools performed an indispensable role. And he believed that teachers needed help in getting materials to their students to teach more about the civic responsibilities of citizenship. And this was in an era when there was a lot of movement to have education become values neutral, that uh, schools should no longer be teaching right from wrong. And Shanker really was a bulwark against uh, some of that. So I'm very proud of the work that I did with Al Shanker. Absolutely. And it sounds like so much of that work feels very, very relevant in the current moment, which I hope we can talk about in, in just a little bit. But I would be remiss not to ask you about your 1991 book, Out of the Barrio, Towards a New Politics of Hispanic Assimilation. And when that book was published, it received great acclaim, but also it was pretty controversial. So could you talk a little bit about the main arguments of that book and its reception and, and its role in sort of those heated policy debates about education at the time. Well, you know, it all sounds rather quaint right now because the view that <laughs> I had about Hispanics has become conventional wisdom. I mean, I had this yeah. very iconoclastic view that Hispanics were not a permanently disadvantaged underclass of people who had been discriminated against and were going to ever forever be downtrodden without massive government help. My view was that Hispanics, who at the time, most were Mexican-American, but there were also Puerto Ricans and some others as well, immigrants from, from other countries and their children, particularly Cubans, I, I should say. And what I found is that this book was published in 1991. And at the time, if you had turned on the television and heard a story about Hispanics in the U.S., and particularly about Hispanic education, you would have heard that Hispanics had a very high dropout rate, that Hispanics were not succeeding, that they were not moving up the economic ladder, that many of them did not speak English. And it would have given you a very distorted view of that population. And so what I did was when I started writing the book, I decided that I would gather research data and I would look at the population through the lens of trying to look at each of the three major groups at that time separately, but not just looking at Mexican-Americans, Cuban-Americans, and Puerto Ricans, who are American citizens uh, by birth, regardless of whether they're born on the island or in the United States mainland proper. And I would look at whether or not they were native-born in the U.S. or whether they had recently immigrated. And I found out that once you disaggregated the data and looked at education levels, earnings levels, English language proficiency, a whole host of factors, that what emerged was a picture that showed that Mexican-Americans who were born in the U.S., had been schooled in the United States, were doing pretty well. They were graduating high school at rates not all that different from non-Hispanic whites. And Cuban-Americans were doing exceptionally well. Puerto Ricans, depending on where they lived, uh, some of them were doing 
okay and some of them were not. And the welfare state played a very big role in that. Puerto Ricans living outside the high welfare states of New York and New Jersey were doing very well. Those who lived in the New York, New Jersey area where you had very high welfare payments and very high welfare rates were not doing as well. And so what I tried to do was to say that, you know, looking at Hispanics as one big group, undifferentiated, whether they had come here recently or had been here generations like my family had, was distorting the image. I said it was a little bit like looking at a picture in 1913 of the Jewish population, for example, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And if you were to look at the statistics about that population at that time, you would suspect that uh, Jews were poor, they were not English speaking, they were struggling, and yet that would not tell you very much about what the Jewish population would look like 50 years later. Or you could do it with Italians, you could do it with Germans uh, in the 19th century, you could do it with almost any immigrant group. And so that was a big change in thinking about the Hispanic population. Interestingly, though, I think over time, my understanding of what was happening in the population has been borne out. And today we see that the Hispanic population that is US born, English speaking, schools in the United States is doing quite well and are moving into the middle class, even up, up the ranks into the professional classes. But new immigrants, particularly those who are here without documentation, who have come across into the United States illegally or who have, ex who have expired visas and therefore don't have legal status, they're not doing as well. And that really does, if you look at the whole group together and don't separate out the groups, it sometimes can give a distorted image. There are so many things I love about what you just said, in particular, first of all, as a mother of three children who I'm married to an Hispanic person and my three children probably identify as Hispanic. But I, I so much of what you said about not painting all people in a group with one broad brush, I think is so refreshing. And I do, I would agree that we've moved to a different place, but, but what you've really honed in on in terms of the language we use to describe people, I think even with other groups in the United States, we sometimes fall into a trap of describing folks as either victims or painting a picture that is not always honest or helpful. Yes. So thank you for that. But really, there's so much what you said. You also touched upon new immigrants to the United States. And of course, you have had a career that's very focused on the need for an open and diverse national immigration policy, as well as to some of what you were just talking about, education that embraces learning English and shared civic ideals, among other things. So could you talk to us a little bit about your views on immigration and how they've formed over the years? And of course, you know, some of us came up in a generation, I would put myself here, that where we talked about a melting pot, and now we've moved to a place where that's not how we talk about our nation. I'm, I'm curious as to your views on this and what are the implications for how we think about immigration to the United States, creating a shared civic society, civil values? How are you thinking about that today? 
Well, I am a big champion of immigration, despite the fact that my personal history, people always assume, well, you know, that's because you must be from immigrant roots. But as I told you, the only immigrants <laughs> in my family came from Ireland. So, and we're English speaking. You know, it's not personal. It has to do with my view of what this country is all about. And I think one of the reasons we've been so successful as a nation is that we're constantly being infused with new blood. And these are people who come here wanting a better life, not just for themselves, but for their children. They're strivers. They may not come with a lot of money or a lot of education or high skills, but they're given an opportunity here and they will advance up the economic ladder. But more importantly, their children and grandchildren will advance even further up that ladder. So I'm for very generous legal immigration to the United States. I do believe that we need changes in our legal immigration system because right now our whole system is based on family reunification. If you have relatives in the United States who are already here, your chances of being able to immigrate if you are a close relative are much greater than if you are somebody who doesn't have any roots here in the United States, but perhaps has skills that we could use. So I think we need to go to a more skills-based system of immigration and that we ought to be flexible in terms of the number. You don't want to be admitting a lot of people at a time when the country is struggling economically. If you're in a recession or worse, a depression, people aren't going to be eager to have more people coming in to compete for fewer jobs. But if the economy is growing and you've got job opportunities available, bringing in more people actually helps grow that economy. So I think we need a flexible policy. I'd like to see one based on skills, but I want to be very broad in my interpretation of what skills we need. We need lots of people at the high end. We need people who have engineering degrees, math degrees, science degrees, the whole STEM group of people with that kind of education background. But we also need people who are at the less skilled level, who do jobs that, frankly, Americans feel too educated to want to aspire to. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of, of Americans who say, oh, gee, I really hope my kids grow up and pick crops in California. Or, gee, I really hope that when my kids uh, finish high school that they can go out and become janitors in our office buildings. We have needs for people to do jobs across the skill spectrum. So I would create a system where you could admit people who did not necessarily have high education and high math, engineering, computer skills, but who were in their young earning years and who had a willingness to be able to accept work where we had jobs that, that are going unfilled. And that, ironically, is what we have seen happen in a number of industries that employ a lot of people who are not legally in the United States. The meatpacking industry, the agricultural industry, these are, in fact, areas where a lot of undocumented immigrants are working albeit working you know, without legal permission, 
but they're taking jobs not that would otherwise go to those who are here legally or those who were U.S. citizens, but rather jobs that probably would go unfilled. And so I think we need to be very thoughtful about how we reform our immigration laws, but that there is a need for labor. We have about 8 million jobs that right now are going wanting that we can't find people to take those jobs. And so we need to have an immigration policy that encourages people who will come here to work. But once they're here, I do believe it's important to learn English. I think that one of the reasons we've succeeded so well as an immigrant nation is that we welcome people from all sorts of backgrounds, but we want them to become part of our society. And so teaching English, particularly to the children of immigrants uh, who come, is, I think, really important. And it's important not just for unification of the country, but it's important for the success of those children to be able to move up that economic ladder. As a former ESL teacher in, in various different settings, everything from factories in Detroit and Chicago to the public school system, I have to say, I don't think I have ever met a person who has come to this country and said, I don't want to learn English. <laughs> Rather, right. it seems like something <laughs> that is imposed, right? Like imposed on them by native speakers of English. And I also think that we shouldn't confuse the desire to maintain one's native language with it doesn't preclude you from learning English, nor do people want it to. So it's always that part of the debate about the teaching of English, especially in our schools, is been is fascinating and frustrating to some extent because I think that so often it forecloses the voices of the people who are most affected. <laughs> right, and, and come to this country and, themselves. And I have been very, very active on that issue, as you know. I have been a big champion of English learners and helping people acquire English quickly, not just children, but adults as well. You know, I think that it would be helpful to have classes on work sites for those janitors and and ag workers and chicken people who are involved in the meat processing industry, for example, to have people there helping during breaks or after work to teach English. But most importantly, the public schools have a role to play and need to quickly transition children into English. But as you say, that doesn't prevent you from using your native language at home, in your church. As a Catholic, I'm very fond of going to the Spanish language masses. It sounds Mm -hmm. more like the Latin that I grew up with. So that's the American way. That's always been the way. Germans in the 19th century who immigrated to the United States set up their own schools and taught children in German. In the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there were very active Yiddish theater, Yiddish radio, Yiddish newspapers. Italians as well had very active community groups that promoted Italian culture and Italian language. But ultimately, over time, the children and ultimately the grandchildren tend to be not just English speaking, but English dominant and sometimes English monolingual. So we have limited time left. If I can keep you for one more, which is probably a whopper of a question, but I'm sure you've answered many, many of those in your life. I want to just ask you about your memoir entitled An Unlikely Conservative, The Transformation of an Ex-Liberal. And it talks about, you know, your life and career and sort of, you mentioned this a little bit before, how your views have shifted from, well, some might say from the left to the right. We're in a moment, we have been in a long, long moment in this country where it seems like the chasm between 
people <laughs> of different political parties and affiliations is wider and wider. We, I am talking to you during a really sad week when we've seen Russia invade the Ukraine. And it's, I think in my lifetime, this is one of the most tense moments I can remember both in our own nation and, and it seems to be across the globe. Can you give us your thoughts on why it is we just can't seem to make things work lately? We can't seem to find any common ground with one another. That's part of the problem is that we don't have common ground. And I point the finger squarely at the changes that have taken place in the media. And by the media, I don't just mean newspapers and television, cable news, et cetera, but social media and others. We basically have reverted to being very much into our own clans, into our own subgroups where we don't watch the same programs, we don't read the same articles, and therefore we don't have a common sense of fact. We don't all, you know, have a common sense of, of views and values, and we become less respectful of each other's opinion. And I think that is a great tragedy and does not bode well for the future of democracy in this country. I think we need to be able to have common reference points. And you mentioned the war in Ukraine, the launching of a uh, power grab and trying to take back and reconstitute the former Soviet empire that Vladimir Putin has been involved in. At one time, when something like that had happened, it would have been uniting to Americans, and they would have all sort of gathered around their president, whether they voted for him or not. There is a great deal that I don't agree with Joe Biden about. But this is a time when we have to be united as a nation. And so I think we've got to figure our way out of this mess we're in, or else I think we are in jeopardy of losing our more than 200-year history of a democratic republic. We have to respect each other. We have to respect each other's views. But we have to have common core principles that we believe in in order to survive. Well, I hope people are listening. So, <laughs> Linda Chavez, it's been an absolute pleasure and a learning experience. Thank you so very much for your time today. And I know that this is going to be quite a downloaded episode of The Learning Curve. So one form of media, hopefully getting the right message out there to folks. Uh, yours seems right to me. Thank you so much. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. And of course, we always end with the tweet of the week. This week's tweet of the week from Education Next, Gerard, and it's a quote from an article, from a really cool article, actually, that I would highly recommend. And the quote is, we know very little about the economic cost of running an electrical engineering program compared to, say, a history department or the resource consequences of steering more students into these fields. And so this article from Education Next's most recent issue, Major Differences and Why Some Degrees cost colleges more than others, I highly recommend. It's a really cool in-depth look at a question that we so rarely consider when we talk about college costs. And that is like, what's the value of one degree versus another in terms of the resources that colleges have to put in? And so they really, they look at different fields of study and they talk about how it's more expensive for a university to do one degree to get a kid through one four-year degree than another. And this comes down to various things, including 
class size, to some extent, faculty pay, how different fields have changed over time, and oof, here's a big one, use of adjunct faculty, a topic I hope we can talk about on the learning curve at some point. You and I have both adjuncted plenty before. Gerard, next week, we are going to be speaking with a woman that I think many of our listeners will know, the wonderful Leslie Heiner, who is the VP of Legal Affairs at EdChoice and just an all-around delightful person. So I'm looking forward to that. Gerard, safe globetrotting. <laughs> I wish you well. And it's so lovely to be back with you again. Ditto. Ditto, he says. All right, listeners, until next week, take care. Bye-bye.